Welcome to the Corporate Corner. My name is Mats Andersson. And I'm Ariel Green Andersson. We'll share with you conversations with people from around the world about their corporate experiences. At TCC, we look forward to together creating community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another week of the Corporate Corner. Today's guest is Mike Robbins. Mike is an author of several books, a speaker and a a leadership coach, and uh, he has now written a book with the absolute best title for the moment. We're all in this together. He started to write this book last summer, and it was not about the corona crisis, but um, the... The title of the book sums it up so well how this time is so specific because we are literally all in this together and at the same time so separated physically. So um, the the book, it came out this week. Normally it was scheduled for later, but they pushed it forward. And as said, it's not about the coronavirus, but it's about creating a team culture of high performance, trust and belonging. And there's a lot of interesting things in there that we could uh, apply to the the current times. Uh, so we talk about the book, of course. We, book to, we talk about diversity, which is such a big uh, subject here in the U.S. Uh, less in Europe, where it's um, where I mean, in 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 the U.S. When you apply for a job, you have to. Um, uh, tell which uh, race you are, which would be uh, illegal to even ask for in Europe. Um, so it's uh, interesting differences. Uh, we talk about self-righteous versus conviction and also uh, a lot of other things uh, in, in, that, that Mike has written and experienced over the years. Um, we are nearly neighbors, so we meet... Uh, like a couple of kilometers away, Mike is sitting sitting down in Marin County, and I'm up in Sonoma County. It was pretty interesting to be so close and still so far. Uh, so I hope you will enjoy this uh, conversation, and uh, I'm really excited to share the talk with Mike Robbins. Without further ado, here it comes. Mike, welcome to the Copper Corner. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, excellent to have you on. You have written a book, which is, I think it has the best name I, I, I've seen uh, from, from a timing point of view. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're all in this together. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's my fifth book. And, you know, Matt's when I was writing it, of course, last summer and knew it was going to come out in the spring of 2020. I didn't anticipate that it was going to come out in the midst of a global pandemic. But, uh, you know, it seems as though lots of people are saying, understandably, right now, we're all in this together. And that's uh, absolutely true, probably more than ever. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, so, uh, it's so funny because you can really feel that, like, maybe there have been a couple of times in, in the world when you had 9-11, you have the tsunami where you felt this that we all in together. But here it's going on for weeks. And it's... Uh, right. And at the same time, we are so separated. Yeah. Right. It is. It's kind of paradoxical. You know, yeah. the, one of the things, though, different from, you know, with 9-11 and I was living here in the U.S., maybe you were in, in the Czech Republic or in Sweden at that time. Yeah. And, you know, when there's a tsunami or like we've had some big fires here in California or earthquakes over the years or whether, you know, when those things happen, I mean, it does definitely change people's perspective. And there's a lot of 
concern and awareness. But, you know, I don't think we've ever had anything that's impacted so many people across the country, around the world at the same time. And to your point, it's, you know, we're in the midst of it right now. It's probably going to go on for much longer yeah. with the duration of it and, and every aspect of it. I mean, this is so unprecedented, you know, and I think there's a an irony in a way or, or paradox in a way to what you're talking about, too. We're all separated in our own space, staying away from each other. Yeah. Yet we're all connected through this, you know, universal experience. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. And the, the, the speed of the, of the it feels like time is different. Uh, so, so a day is not a day, or a week is not a week. It's, mm -hmm. It 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 goes uh, so fast. Uh, right. The it is. It's it's hard to know what day of the week it is, or what's going on, or when, yeah. how long. And and I think I think in some ways, you know, so much of my work that I've done over the years, and I do now with a lot of the clients that we work with, has to do with, you know, how do teams come together, and how do we connect and collaborate and perform together. And while, of course, this situation and what's going on right now is so unique and so challenging in some ways, I think similarly, though, there's a parallel and it's a little bit of a stretch. But when we work in the corporate environment, in, the, in our professional lives, understandably, most of us are very individually focused, even if we're in a leadership role, even if we're managing a team of people. It's like, how do I make sure that I'm successful or even if the team's successful so that you know, we and, and me can yeah. move along and have more success and whatever, fill in the blank. And the interesting thing, and I'm sure you've seen this over the course of your career, I definitely have through sports and then through the last 20 years as a consultant working with a lot of different teams is when we can figure out how to get beyond just our own personal ambition, yeah. not that we get rid of it, but we put it a little bit to the side and we think about what's good for the collective it's a bit of a leap of faith. It's a challenge to do. And every now and again, we've all gotten burned doing that. But more often than not, it ends up being that something greater happens. And then it benefits us personally as a byproduct, but not by simply just focusing on ourselves. That's so true. When you focus uh, on, um, when you go away from yourself, you can, uh, the, the overall result is often so much better. Yeah. And again, it's, I mean, I think there's this notion I often have said for years, you know, again, it's not that we have to not have our own goals or our own ambition. It's just if we can put and, and get focused on what are my personal goals, what are my personal ambitions, and how do I link those up with what the larger goals and the larger vision of whatever it is we're doing collectively, right, then both me and the team can succeed. And again, if we put more of our attention on the collective, it actually takes some pressure off of us personally and in a lot of ways, our own personal success becomes a byproduct of the team success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, totally. So maybe a couple of words about you. So you are you have written several books. You're a speaker. Yep. You have a podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, this is my fifth book, and I've had a podcast for the last few years. You know, the the work that I do um, focuses a lot on leadership and teamwork and culture and. I've had a chance, you know, I live here in, in California, in the Bay Area, not too far from where you live, yeah. um, get a chance to work with a lot of great companies in Silicon Valley, like, you know, Google and eBay and Adobe, and then companies in other industries like Gap and Schwab. And, you know, it, it, it what's interesting, my background, Matt's actually, I came to do this work through sports. I actually grew up here in California in the States, and I, I played baseball all growing up as a kid. And uh, got actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. 
Yeah, I saw I that in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford. Yeah, um, and then got drafted out of Stanford by another pro baseball team here in the U.S., the Kansas City Royals. Signed a contract with the Royals. You have to go into the minor leagues, even when you get drafted by a major league team, and try to work your way up. I ended up sadly and unfortunately getting injured. I was a pitcher and I tore ligaments in my elbow. And was forced to retire after three surgeries, but basically played baseball from the age of seven until I got hurt at 23 and finally retired at 25. And I was super bummed when I got hurt. But one of the things that I'd become most fascinated by, particularly by the time I got to college and was playing professionally, was I was fascinated by team dynamics. Yeah. Because I was on some teams sometimes with really good talent, but the team wasn't very good which was super frustrating and confusing because in sports you figure, right, if you have the best athletes, the best players, you should have the best team, right? Yeah. It's not, not <laughs> it's always not, the case. Not always the and case. Then, right. And then on the flip side, I was on some other teams, you know, had pretty good talent, not great. And team was awesome though. We would like beat other teams that had better players than we did, which I found interesting, you know, kind of curious. Yeah. How does that work? But we called it team chemistry, right? In sports, no one could exactly define what that was, but you knew when you had it and you definitely knew when you didn't have it. And it wasn't just some warm, fuzzy, touchy-feely thing. It like made us play better, both as a team, but also back to the thing we were just talking about. As an individual, I always found it easier for me to succeed personally when I was on a team with good chemistry. And that chemistry a lot had to do with, you know, we cared about each other, we supported each other, we rooted for each other, like the egos were sort of in check to some degree. And and when I left sports, I erroneously thought that's a sports thing. Like then I got into the business world, late 90s, I get a job working in the, you know, internet world.com boom time here in the Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, I immediately noticed the business world, the tech world was super different than the sports world, but that whole team chemistry thing, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. We just call it culture in business. And it's it's basically the same thing. It's that intangible thing that brings us together, has us bring the best out of each other or has the opposite effect when it's not any good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so so true. And you, you are part of the dot, dot com bubble crashing as well or you yes i was well you know so i worked for a couple different internet companies the one that i was with um you know in the summer of 2000 when the dot com bubble sort of burst i ended up yeah losing my job which was you know not very exciting although i wasn't you know a few years earlier when my baseball career ended i was devastated when i lost my you know internet job i was bummed and concerned like well i'm gonna have to pay the rent some other way But it actually ended up being kind of a blessing for me because I sort of half-heartedly tried to find a job for the next month or two and wasn't able to find one because everybody was getting laid off at that time. Yeah. But it opened sort of – it created an opening for me to start my business, which is when when that happened almost 20 years ago, um, sort of by necessity because I couldn't really find a job. And I had a mentor of mine ask me, you know, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I would write and I would speak and I would, you know, try to – inspire people in any way that I could. And he was like, great, you should do that now. And I was like, now don't, don't you have to have like a credential or a degree or some kind of yeah. you know, experience or something? And he was like, well, you could wait till you figured it out. Or you could just go for it now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he encouraged me and I met my now wife, Michelle at the time we just started dating and she had started her own business in a different industry. She was in the staffing industry, but she really encouraged me like, Hey, starting your own business, not the easiest thing in the world, but not as hard as you think. And you can do it. So, you know, I took the leap at that time, didn't know what the hell I was doing. And 20 years later, I think I've figured out a few things, although sometimes I still don't think I know what the hell I'm doing. But, you know, I've been able to, uh, <laughs> that's, that's great. you know, yeah. write some books and have some fun and 
get to work with a lot of really great teams and companies. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's, it's great. You, in, in the book, you, you just mentioned something there. You talk about it in the book, the imposture syndrome. Yes. Yeah, and and it, it's funny because when you when um, when you mention how some people act um, when they have the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, I better understand uh, a lot of people I've seen around because the the I I also been struck by that feeling, but yeah. but I I think I act out in the other way around. I feel like totally useless, uh, <laughs> and, and it's, that's probably cultural. Then, uh, whereas an American is probably. Uh, yes, blowing his um, own horn more. <laughs> yes, we're we're a little obnoxious and arrogant here in the United States, as I'm sure you've noticed. Probably a little different than in the Czech Republic or in Sweden. Um, yeah, it's I mean, I, different. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah, uh, yeah, it's cultural. Yeah. For for you, for yeah. culturally, like how do, how does the imposter syndrome manifest itself for people in the Czech Republic or in Sweden? Well, where, no, for well, where, for for me personally, I was if if I were 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 doing something and I think this, this is not me, then I I, I well, this is not this cannot be true that I'm in this this position, then I, I probably withdraw more and, and, and talk yes. less. Uh, yeah. Well, and I, th- I think, you know, again, it is somewhat of an American cultural thing. I mean, obviously, I've spent some time traveling around other places in the world, although I've lived my whole life here in the US, so I don't have the most objective opinion on Americans, although I think I can see some of the, the dynamics culturally. But one of the things I think in our culture here in the United States, and obviously people are really different and we have a pretty diverse um, you know, population of people here in America, but there is this notion and this idea, which has some value, but also has some challenge of the kind of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right. Act, act as if you know what you're doing and you'll figure it out. And I think that can be, look, we all have to do that in life sometimes. I mean, I think about being a parent, right? We have a 14 year old and 11 year old and it's like, you know, it's one of the most amazing and hardest things I've ever done in my life. And many times through the process and even still now, you know, my girls will look at me, especially when they were little and they'd ask me a question. And I'd be thinking like, why are you asking me that? And that wouldn't say it out loud. But I'm like, oh, yeah, because I'm the dad. Like, I'm supposed to know something here when really I'm like looking around for like, when's a grown up going to show up here and tell these these children, you know, whatever they're asking. <laughs> yeah. But I think, again, part of parenting, part of leadership, part of life, part of entrepreneurialism, part of any kind of risk taking is we do kind of have to, you know, fake our way through it a little bit at first because we don't really know what we're doing you know, the first time or the first few times or when we get a new opportunity or whatever the case may be. And I think as long as we can tell the truth to ourselves and have some awareness about that, that can be fine. When we are either lying to ourselves or overcompensating so much because we're afraid, oh, people are going to find out, I don't really know what I'm doing and then I'm going to lose this opportunity or whatever. That's when it becomes detrimental to us internally, but also to the relationships we have and to the environment. If we're constantly I was talking to someone earlier today on a podcast and he was saying he used to have a business partner who was always sort of positioning everything and spinning everything and trying to calculate everything. And he said at one point he just couldn't work with him anymore because this guy was just, you know, everything was sort of a a game of how you could spin it in the right way. And, you know, that becomes exhausting. Yeah, it, there, there is limit to it. I mean, I think that Americans are the the world champions is, is faking, <laughs> fake it till you make it. But I think, I mean, at the same time, I think it's good. I mean, where I grew up was probably the, 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 the polar opposite that, that mm. you, you, nobody could grow higher than the, the highest tree. And, uh, right. uh, but, but the danger is that you, you think you are, you have to be like that. You, you, you're stuck in a, you, you, you have this image of yourself and you, you kind of 
you can change things. So this is also, yeah, the, I think, so important that you can grow and uh, you can be different. And it's so yeah. easy that you get trapped in a in an image of yourself. Um, right. No, it's true. It's it's very true. And I think, look, I mean, there's probably value in both, and then meeting somewhere in the in the happy middle. I think culturally, sometimes it can both be culturally, like where you grew up, like you. It can also be cultural within a family, you know, that oh, we're humble, or oh, we don't, you know, you don't stand out, don't, you know. And then on the flip side, there can be the sort of, you know, beat your chest and try to be the greatest and the best all the time, which we have a lot of here in the United States. But again, usually. Uh, the work that I do a lot focuses a lot on authenticity and yeah. it's like, how can we go deeper? If, if we genuinely feel confident, passionate, proud, excited, can we come from an authentic place in that? If we genuinely feel scared, insecure, inferior, right? Can we tap into that authentically? Because either way there's power in that. Yeah. There's always power in authenticity. Like if I'm authentically scared and I tap into that authentic fear, I can move through it and use that in a positive way. If I'm authentically feeling confident um, and excited or passionate, I can tap into that and really utilize that. If we're either pretending that we're not feeling scared or afraid or insecure, or we're overcompensating and pretending like we're really confident when you know we're not, my my one of my mentors and coaches likes to say to me, Mike, if you're trying to prove it, you don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, you, which is a a good, you know, litmus test for, oh, I'm pushing really hard to prove this thing, that I'm good at this, or I know this, or this is the right idea. It's probably because underneath, I don't actually believe that's true, so I'm just going to talk loud and bang my fist on the table to prove yeah, the yeah, point, yeah. you know? Yeah, is this what you, you talk about, uh, a lot about the self-righteous, self-righteous yes. versus conviction? Yes. So self-righteousness yeah. is, I'm right, you're wrong, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes we might say that out loud and oftentimes it's much more subtle or more passive aggressive. And again, conviction is believing something to be true and being willing to speak up about it and stand for it. It's really healthy. Self-righteousness is, I'm right, you're wrong, and it separates us. It pushes people away from us. Yeah. And unless everyone agrees with us all the time, which by the way, never happens, um, we end up causing all kinds of disconnection and separation in our relationships. And this is, is catastrophic to teams and to families and to relationships. And the problem oftentimes, Mats, is that we don't think we're being self-righteous when we're being self-righteous. We just think we're right. And even yeah. with the people we love the most. I mean, think of the arguments we get into with our spouse or our close friends or our family members. It's often, you know, this who's right, who's wrong when there's not any sort of right or wrong answer. There's just your perspective and my perspective, right? If we're friends or we're brothers or we're teammates, you know, you have it, you yeah, do it your I, way, I do it my way. Absolutely. And, and, and it seems like the world has become kind of yeah. more, more polarized uh, the last year. So it, 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 For sure. it, it's you're either on one camp or another. And exactly. uh, I, I don't know if uh, it's, it looks like Corona has popped up now as another subject where people can be deeply divided on how to solve the problem. Right. Uh, well, and, and I think a lot of times it's so right. I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote this book called it, we're all in this together and wanted it to come out this year. I mean, the, the primary focus of the book is, you know, how do you create a team culture of high performance, trust and belonging? A lot of, you know, the work and the research that I've done, but the secondary reason was really, I want this book to come out. I wanted it to come out this year knowing that here in the United States, we're in a presidential election year, we've been incredibly divided politically and socially and 
you know, ideologically here. Not that that wasn't the case prior to the last few years, but it's gotten to a fever pitch. It's true in other places in the world and other countries. And there just seems to be this rise of polarization across the sort of spectrum of politics and of countries. And, you know, some of it's probably in a very practical way has to do with social media and that we can communicate. We all have platforms. We're all publishing. We're all right. Content creators. You and I are having this conversation on a podcast, which is fantastic that we have this technology and capability. What's happened though, is it's created a lot of echo chambers and a lot of, I can shout and, you know, yell at you on Twitter or whatever, and then go with sort of the people who agree with me. And the problem is like, it just doesn't work. And I don't know anybody right now, regardless of your political persuasion or background or beliefs, it seems like everyone's mad all across the spectrum and people, right. There's like, there's not yeah, a sense no, of it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, I, I liked one of the stories you shared in the, in the book where you sit next to a gentleman on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was on a flight, right. It was, yeah, tell we it, had tell a very, yeah. it, very interesting conversation about politics. You know, we're sitting on a plane. This is a couple of years ago. I'm flying from, uh, Fort Lauderdale in, in Florida up to New York. I, had, I was on the road for the week doing some speaking engagements. And this guy's sitting in the window and his mom is right next to him. Who's She's like in her 80s. He's about in his mid-50s. And we have the televisions on. Um, we're on a JetBlue flight. So there's TVs in front of us. And I wasn't even watching mine anymore. I was actually doing some work. And he starts pointing at my screen because I'd been watching the news when we first took off pointing at my screen and he's saying fake news, fake news. And I, I'd been watching CNN and I was like, what, is he talking to me? What's going on? I don't even think, and he does it again. And I take my earbuds out cause I was listening to something on my laptop and I was like, are you, are you talking to me? He's like, it's fake news. CNN is liberal propaganda. <laughs> and I looked over and he and his mom were both watching Fox news on their TVs. And I said, you know, I noticed you're watching Fox. And he said, yes, yeah, the only honest news on television. And I, and then I have this thought in my head, like, okay, this could be interesting because I don't agree with what he just said, but do I really want to say anything and get into this with him or do I just kind of, and I said something like, well, I don't know, man, I'd be careful about that. I've read some stuff that says Fox News viewers are the most misinformed and he, oh, you liberal snowflake, blah, and he starts yelling at me and there we're <laughs> off to the races. And I'm like, this is fascinating. Like, so we end up having like a 45 minute long conversation and, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And we're talking about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and all kinds of different issues of healthcare. You name it. I mean, yeah. we literally sounded like, you know, cable news pundits arguing. Right. Yeah. And I was trying to be calm. I was trying to just listen and engage and, you know, and it wasn't it, anyway. And at some point I just told him stop because he was like calling me names and it was getting yeah, a little ridiculous. Yeah. And I said, I said, stop. I said, do you have children? And he looked at me and yeah. And I said, I have children. I said, I have two girls. This was a couple years ago. So they were whatever, 11 and eight or something at the time. I said, I have two girls who are 11 and eight. And, and he said, I have four kids and his kids were older than mine. Cause he's a bit older than me. Uh, I think they were in their What oh, this was like 30. The others were in their twenties. And yeah. I said, sometimes I worry as hard as I try to be a good father and to do the right thing with my girls, it's complicated. And I worry that I'm screwing them up, that I'm do not doing a great job as a father. I said, do you ever worry about that? Or did you ever worry about that when your kids were younger? And he looked at me kind of weird, like, why are you asking me this? Right. But he said, well, yeah, of course. I think everybody, every parent feels like that sometimes. And I said, okay. And I said, maybe all of these issues about politics. I said, I obviously have very strong opinions. So do you, we don't agree with each other. I said, but maybe they're so complex and there's so much going on that even as strong as I feel about these things, like maybe I don't know all the answers about what the right thing to do is with some of these things. 
Yeah. And he looked at me kind of weird, like he didn't really know what to say. And oh, okay. And he sort of said, I guess. And he and then the conversation basically ended. But we had just a moment there of human interaction, like yeah. vulnerable connection. Like we found some common ground. And it wasn't that we agreed. And I don't think I convinced him of any of my, of my opinions. And he definitely didn't convince me of any of his. But in that moment, it was like, where can we find some common ground as human beings? We both happen to be fathers. And, you know, I shared something vulnerably about my own experience of fatherhood and he could relate to it. And so, again, I, I read a piece recently that said, I disagree with you, but I'm listening. That was yeah. all about, like, how can we listen to each other? Not just about politics. It's hard about, but even yeah. like at work, even at home, even with things, you know, I noticed this with our teenage daughter, our 14 year old. It's like, man, she has a lot of strong opinions, which I love. And sometimes it's really difficult to engage because it's like, what happened to that sweet little six-year-old that used to think I was the coolest person on the planet? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But to be able to listen in a way where we can find some common ground with the other human being or other human beings we're interacting with. And that may sound subtle and small, but it's profound if we can do that in life, particularly with the people that we work with. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And and I think everybody has responsibility here. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the news here. I mean, in Europe, we only hear Fox News is bad, Fox News is bad. But then I mm -hmm. came here and I was sitting and watching the, the news on both sides because, I mean, I, I like to hear all yeah. kind of opinions. It's, uh, uh, and, and I think, it, to me, it seems like similar on both sides. They, they spend 90% yeah. just, like, uh, talking bad about the other side. It, it's, not, right. it's not really news in the, in, it, the, in the sense that I grew up with, but it, I mean, the right. Swedish state television. I don't know how much that better that was. But, well, <laughs> but I, I mean, think it, it was. It was really objective, I think. Yeah. You're right. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, part of what happened here in America, and you may know this, but, like, in the 80s, in the 1980s, what started to happen was, I mean, first of all, CNN came out in the early 80s. So it was the first, you know, cable news network is what CNN stands for, right? And it was like, hey, we can, well, people watch news all day long. And the truth was, at that time, there wasn't really enough news to for them to cover all day. So they realized, oh, we have to have things that are sensationalized, that are interesting, that are dramatic, that'll get people to tune in. Because yeah. Odell was, right, if you're, you know, if you're selling advertisements on your network, on your website, on your podcast, on your anything, what you need is people watching or listening. Otherwise, you can't make any money. So at some level, you know, and even within the networks in here in the United States, the, the mainstream networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, for many years, the news division was separate from the entertainment division. Like they didn't have to make money. It was simply just just the facts, educate and inform the public. And then what happened was they started to need to figure out how to make money. There was more competition in the marketplace. And then wow. you move that through the 90s when Fox News started and MSNBC started. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, CNN had some competition. So now it becomes, yes, we want to try to inform. We want to try to do some journalism. But at the same time, if we don't have an audience, we don't have a business. And we don't have a business, we can't keep operating. So, you know, you could understand why, whether it's Fox or yeah. any of the cable news yeah. networks, what they're trying to get is an audience to engage and a great way to get an audience to engage is to get people who are scared or people who are pissed, right? One of those two things will have people tune in or have them click or whatever the case is. And so we've gotten to a situation now where so much of media in cable and also on the Internet is designed to make money as opposed to actually be accurate and inform. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I understand, understand better where, where, they, where yeah. they come from. Well, this fear um, notion is it's really, I think that's that's 
really bad because then that's that's on both sides that that maybe people are scared now and that's never yes. never good. Right. No, it's it's very true. And and again, I think for if you think about that, just using that as an example, and if we turn that back into, you know, that shows up and I see this all the time in the in the business world, right, Mats? It's like you got the the San Francisco office against the New York office. You got the marketing department against the sales team or the engineering team and the legal team. You know, I mean, it becomes this territorial thing. And and yeah. one of the things that I often say, and I've literally sat in rooms with really, really smart, really successful people, the CEO of a big technology company and his or her, you know, executive team. And in, at some point, the conversation goes in a way, and I'll often say, hold on a second, who's the us and who's it's it's not about being naive or Pollyanna, but at some level, a team of any kind, yes, we're going to debate. Yes, we're going to disagree. Yes, we're going to see things differently. We're going to challenge each other. Yeah. But if there's if there's a dynamic inside of any team, a family, a team, a team of five people, a team of 5,000 people, where it feels like there's an us and there's a them, there's an in and there's an out, we've got a problem. Yeah. Everybody, even if you're on the in, if there's people that feel like they're out, then there's, it's not really a team. It's a group of people sort of pretending like they're, right? And that's tricky, especially as a company gets really big and there is hierarchy and there is the senior leadership and the board of directors and all of that. Like, can you genuinely create a community within your team where people and everyone feels like they belong? Yeah, That's not easy to do, but it's fundamental. Absolutely. You, you, you talk about some tricks you use in, the, in your... Um leadership training so that is if you know mm -hmm. if you know me or how to get yes. people open up when you have trainings could you talk a little bit about that yeah the the metaphor that i use when i'm talking about um authenticity and and how we connect with each other is a bit of an overused metaphor but it fits really nicely it's the metaphor of the iceberg right yeah. and we show up in life particularly at work and we let the tip of our iceberg pop up above the surface that's that's the fake it till you make it. That's the, hey, how you doing? I've got it together. You know. And again, our version here in America might look a little different than in Sweden. But in general, it's kind of the, the facade we put out, the, the representative you know, we, we send out to the meeting as opposed to ourselves. And when I'm working with teams and with leadership teams in particular, there's an exercise that we do that I love. And I've been doing this for years. And it's, it's simple on the one hand, but it's challenging and it can really be profound. And what we do, especially, I'll do this in different contexts. Sometimes I'm in a room with a lot of people and maybe I'll pair people up. But ideally, I love it when I'm with a group of 10 or 15 at the most, sometimes even less. And it's just the team. And I sort of have talked a bit about the importance of authenticity and even vulnerability and really connecting with each other as human beings. And then the conversation goes like this. And I'll start, but everyone gets about two minutes to talk and we go around the table and, and you just repeat this phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. Yeah. And you just keep saying, if you really knew me, and again, there's no right or wrong way. People don't have to say something they don't want to say. This isn't, it is challenging people a little bit, but what I say is like, no one's going to respond when you're talking, just you get to talk. Everyone's going to listen. And we're going to keep whatever gets said in this room during this conversation confidential. And what eventually happens, and usually I go first to try to set the tone and, and just, it's really, if we really knew you in this moment, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on? It could be about work. It could be about life. And usually people end up sharing stuff about things that they're scared about or things that they're challenged by or things that maybe they really are hoping for but aren't sure are going to happen. It could be related to their career or to their team or to what's going on in the moment. It could be related. Often stuff about family comes up or, you know, someone's yeah. dealing with a sick parent or a kid they're having a hard time with or whatever. It's just... It's real life human stuff. And what's amazing is we go around the table 
you know, and even now, now, right now with what's ha- happening in the world, you know, I'm doing these on Zoom or on Skype with with teams and everyone's sitting in their own, you know, homes or their own home offices having this conversation. But what's amazing about that is it's such an equalizer because usually as people share and they lower the waterline on their iceberg, not only does it liberate them, it you find like like me with that man on the airplane, right? We find common ground. Not that we necessarily all have the same experiences, but we have a lot of the same emotional experiences, meaning I may not know what it's like to be you or live where you used to live or have the life you have. But if you start lowering the waterline on your iceberg and tell me how you're feeling and what's going on, I've probably felt most of the same things you're currently feeling at some point, whether I'm feeling them or not, joy, sadness, right? Gratitude, Mm -hmm. anger, um, excitement, sad, you know, uh, fear, whatever it is. I mean, we all feel the whole range and that exercise, that conversation often, it really can bring people together and sort of have everyone realize, oh, there is much more common ground than we realize. The natural response to self-righteousness is defensiveness, whereas the natural response to vulnerability is empathy. Yeah. And do, do you, you never see, uh, for a man, for, I mean, with your pairs, I think you can do it. Easy, easier, but if you're a manager who has uh, maybe an uh, kind of author- authoritarian uh, management style, this could be difficult because I mean it could be good in the moment, but then they would really suffering from people knowing uh, more things about them. I can imagine afterwards. <laughs> have you have you seen that, or is it yeah. that the manager yeah. is kind of rela- more reluctant or? Sometimes, I mean, I'll often if with a leader, you know, usually the vast majority of the leaders that I work with or that work with us and bring me in or someone on my team in, they're not going to be that drawn to me or to our work if they're not at least open to this yeah, to some true. degree. Yeah. So I don't work with a ton of like, oh, it's this really authoritarian, like dictatorial leader who thinks <laughs> this is crazy and would never do it. That said, I have had situations where it's like, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to go. Like this dude, and it's usually a dude, it's usually a guy, right? This guy is not going to go that way. But I've been pleasantly surprised over the 20 years of doing this that oftentimes even the toughest nuts will sometimes crack and crack wide open. Yeah. Um, and in do so, doing so, it can be a little tricky. And then it's like, oh, gosh, now, you know, afterwards, we call it the vulnerability hangover. They're like, oh, what did I just say? What did I just do? Can I take it back? I hope no one ever brings that <laughs> up. And, and so yeah, I try tough. to talk to leaders and to team about, um, you know, look, it's OK. And one of the ways we can mitigate against that, look, we don't use these things against people, but once we know things about people, it's actually a way that we grant each other trust. I'm going to share this thing with you about me, and I'm going to trust you're not going to share it with other people, and you're also not going to use it against me. Um, And that becomes, that's why this, it's more the work that I'd like to do, and what I try to empower leaders and teams to do is like, look, this is not a one-shot deal. This is not bring me in for the offsite. We'll do a few exercises. We'll have some discussions. People will open up. I'll share a few ideas, I'll inspire everybody and then leave. Now, even if I only work with them the one time, it's like, look, this is about new language, new muscles, new practices, a way of operating because team health, just like individual and personal health, is an ongoing process. You don't expect to like go off for a weekend, have a good workout, go to the spa, eat some healthy food and come home and say, I'm, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I like I'm done. No, you have to like keep doing it all the time, like every day, all the time as a way of practice, as a way of being, the same thing is true with team health. And the the challenge that a lot of us have, not just when we're in the midst of a global pandemic and everything is flipped upside down, 
but in general is we're always busy. We were super busy three months ago when we weren't thinking that, you know, this virus was going to go all around the world and the economy was really strong. People were super busy just trying to keep up. We were really busy 10 years ago when we were in the midst of a global recession that impacted people in a very significant way. Like we're always busy. There's never really practical time to put in on, you know, sort of taking care of the health of the team. But if we don't, just like our own health and well-being, we're always too busy to go to the gym or do yoga or go for a walk or make the take the extra time to make the healthy meal. But if we always if we constantly neglect that, we end up paying the price for it. Yeah, the, the, it, it's so true. I mean, it, it, to me, it, it seems like most people have uh, accepted that to get in physical good shape, you need to train regularly. But yes. for, for everything else, it's just like, yeah, no training. It's it, it, it's <laughs> like people don't believe in the training. So right. uh, it, it's so important to create the uh, I mean, uh, the awareness at the first place, and then you can work yeah. with it. But it, without having the awareness, you cannot. How can you even create a good team? Yeah, no, that's so true. It's like we're supposed to just and think about that even with like parenting or with marriage. It's like we get more training to drive an automobile than we do to be a spouse or to be a parent, which is insane. Yeah. You know, and it's like we're supposed to just know how to do it. Like I've always thought for years and maybe the education system in Sweden where you grew up is better than in the US, which probably is the case, but like I didn't learn hardly any life skills in class I mean, going to school no, all I mean, those years. And, yeah. and I and I ultimately ended up in college at one of the best universities in the United States. And like there was no interpersonal training, no communication training, no here's how to be a good, you know, friend, human being. Here's how to take care of yourself. Now, again, that has progressed. And there are some of those classes offered in colleges and, and high schools and other places now. But for the most part, you learn math, you learn science, you learn English, you learn history and you know not that those things are bad but like where's the life training come in <laughs> yeah no it, it's so true no i think it, it, it's exactly the same where, where i grew up if i could replace uh, the knowledge of some of the swedish kings with uh, some <laughs> some the mindfulness training or something uh, some right. li life skills or parenting skills i would uh, directly sign up for that uh, yeah for sure <laughs> but another thing you talk quite a lot about in the book is uh, and I, I think here we it's the where this thing started in California the the diversity and uh, inclusion yeah. and, and um, you, you yes. have you have really as it seems like you really worked your way through that uh, yes and uh, I mean I don't have it at all the same feeling about it but I I, I noticed that here it's so strong well you know I mean look there's there's so many layers to it here in the United States but based on our history. And, you know, the diversity of this country and people coming from all over the world as immigrants, most of us, you know, unless you're a Native American, all of us come, you know, either by choice or in the case of, of certain people, not by choice um, to come to this country. And then all these many, many years later, you know, we're still grappling with all kinds of issues around race and gender and orientation here. And, and again, it's not unique to, to America, although we have a unique um aspect of it and challenge with it. And, and one of the things that's interesting here in the United States in particular, Mats, is that, yeah. um, for a lot of people like me, straight, white, male in that, in those sort of dominant groups, there's tends to be either a lack of awareness or, and, or a fear of, oh, I don't really want to talk about or engage in these things because I might get myself in trouble. I'll put my foot in my mouth. I'll say the wrong thing. I'll offend someone. 
I, someone will think I'm racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever. So I'm either not paying attention because I don't have to, right? Because look, if you're a man, you don't have to pay attention as much to your gender than if you're a woman, quite frankly. If you're white, you don't have to pay as much attention to your race as if you're not white. If you're straight, you don't have to pay as much attention to your orientation, your sexual orientation, than if you're you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, all of those things, again, and there are people in the world, I would assume, who are female, who are African-American, who are of different races and backgrounds, who don't spend all day, every day thinking about those aspects of themselves. But what's interesting with respect to why this is so important in our culture right now, both at work and in the culture at large, is I think it's that much more important for all of us to be aware of it. Because again, if, as I think I was saying earlier, if there's an in-group and an out-group, that causes problems for everybody. Clearly more problems for the out-group than the in-group, yeah. but it still creates a problem for the in-group. And so I wanted to, in my book, you know, my work isn't really, or hasn't been about race and gender and orientation and diversity up to the, up to this point. And as I share a bit of my own story in the book, like I grew up in a very racially diverse environment, actually got my degree at Stanford in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity and have paid a lot of attention over the years to these things, but shied away from really talking about them or writing about them, mostly because like out of respect, I'll leave that to people who have more lived experience. Yeah. I'll leave that to people who are real experts in this field. I'll leave that to people who don't look like me because who wants to hear from me about these things? And in the last few years, I've realized through my research, but also through my experience, it's important for any of us who are willing and interested to talk about these things for all of us too. And my hope is that by addressing some of these issues in my book, the way that I have, um, it can give people some tools to engage in some of these conversations in a more authentic and more effective way. Cause they're not that easy. And for the most part, especially again, people who look like me, um, we haven't gotten a lot of training and we haven't had a lot of permission or awareness in order to do that. And the way the world has evolved, particularly here in the United States in the last few years, we can't opt out of these things anymore. Yeah, that's, that's true. But here there is a, a voluntary, um, when you apply for jobs here, you have to, I, I never really understand this. You, you have to tell which race you are. And, right, and, right. Uh, what, what is, is the, underlying purpose to be able to favorize uh, my I, or to to do you know you it? know that's a that's a that's a great question i mean i think part of it my understanding of that is um you know one of the things that we've tried to do in the and look and this is not a perfect system and there's lots of issues to it i mean here's the paradox of america on the one hand we talk a lot about you know, land of opportunity, it's everybody's equal, it's, you know, meritocracy, it's, you know, earn your place at the table. And then there's, you know, been a ton of racial oppression and systematic racism that's existed in our country from its inception. Yeah. Right. So, so part of the way that has been attempted over the years to figure out how do you create opportunity and access, like I interviewed a guy named Eric Severson for my book, who I've known for years, Eric is now the chief people officer at Neiman Marcus. He was, um, for many years, he worked at Gap Inc., which is where I worked with him and knew him. When I was interviewing him last year, he was actually the, the chief human resource officer at DeVita, which is a big healthcare company. And one of the things Eric said was that in all his years, um, and Eric happens to be gay and, um, and has, is an advocate and a, like a, a spokesperson for not only the gay community, but just for inclusion and diversity. And he said, but one of the things 
that he's always advocated for over the years being in these senior human resource roles is that we want to fill the pipeline and with as many diverse candidates as we possibly can. And then we want to pick the best qualified person no matter what. But what, what we know is that, if again, if, if everybody who applies for the job or has access to the job all basically looks the same, there's no way we're going to end up with any diversity, right? So if we put a diverse pool of people into the pool of who can apply for this thing, then we pick the best person. We're not going to favor the person just simply because, oh, here's a female or here's a person from here or there. But we make sure that those people have access, that everybody has access to be able to apply. Because for many years, and even still now, unless you went to this school, unless you looked like this, unless you came from this family, you didn't have access to whatever that was. Do you know what I mean? So an opportunity. So part of what what we're trying to do, and, and again, in a very imperfect way, is open up so there's more representation in the pool, which then ultimately will allow there to be more diverse voices at the table. And the other thing that we now know, again, not for the sake of it, but a diverse, diverse teams perform better at like a rate of about 35% around along racial diversity here in the U S in business and gender diverse teams perform better by about 21%. So again, even if you just look at it from a practical standpoint, it's like, it's in everybody's best interest that there's diversity on teams. Cause we've all been a part of teams where again, it's not so much that People can't look the same or have similar backgrounds, but if you don't have a diversity of skills or diversity of thought or diversity of uh, perspectives, you're not going to make as good of decisions and you're going to be missing out on so many important aspects of the world and how we do business. And oftentimes I'll sit in a room with a leadership team and I'll look at the people around the table. And again, they all might be really smart and talented. They all work their butts off to get into those seats. But I'll say this room does not look representative of your customers or even of your employees. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. therefore, again, yeah. there's there are voices that are missing at those tables. So it's an interesting thing for us to just be aware of and to figure out how we balance. Absolutely. It's very, very difficult to balance in the right way. But it's... Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's true that you have if you have everybody is the same on the team it's like playing with five goalies or right five attackers it doesn't it, really help it, it doesn't work right you no. need that and what's interesting though sometimes I'll I'll be in a room and I'll just point it out not to make a thing but I'll look around and just be like wow you know there's ninety percent of the people in this room are male and a lot of the men won't even notice they'll be like oh yeah. Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah, that's weird. You know, and it's like the women, they all know. Do you know what I mean? Just as an example, or it's like if, if most yeah. everybody's white, the people who aren't white are definitely aware of it. But the yeah. folks who are may or may not be. And again, that's not a judgment. It's, it's not, an you know, but it's just, oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, no, I mean, you, you're not necessarily aware of it. If you if, if that was your life and you grew up like that, you don't pay, pay attention. Yeah, you don't, I was, it, yeah. We, we, a friend of ours was um, who's from Mexico was at our house a couple of years ago. And um, she had, had had taken a workshop over the weekend, a couple hundred people in this workshop. And we were asking her a little bit about it. And I said something to the effect of um, this. So our friend Claudia, I said, were, you know, were there any other Spanish speaking people there as well or any other people from Mexico like you? I don't know why I asked. I was just curious of what the, you know, and she said so there were two people, two other people who were Spanish speaking and, you know, similarly from Mexico like she was. And, and Rosie, our our now 11 year old who was probably about seven or eight at the time said kind of looked at me funny like you know daddy why are you asking that question and i just said well because i'm curious and then she said something to the effect of like well why 
would that matter? Or how would Claudia, you know, how would you know Claudia or something? And I said to Rosie, I said, Rosie, honey, so our daughter is, you know, she's eight years old at the time, seven, eight years old, and she's got blonde hair and blue eyes. I said, honey, imagine if you were in a room in Mexico where Claudia grew up and a lot of the people in the room looked similar to how Claudia looked, but there were one or two other people in the room who looked like you, you'd probably notice them, right? Yeah. And if you figured out, oh, they speak English and everyone else was speaking Spanish, like you might go over and introduce yourself in, in English and say, hi, I'm Rosie. And where are you from? And oh, maybe, you know, and then it was like, it was funny because I could see her mind working. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and again, and just I would imagine whenever I travel outside of the United States, even if I'm just in, in somewhere for a few days, I'm in Switzerland or I'm in Ireland or I'm, you know, in, in England or whatever. If I hear someone speaking and I can tell it's an American, I will turn my head and go, oh, hey, where are you from? And they're like, oh, I'm from Texas. Oh, hey. Yeah. It's just, a, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine you yeah, newly, it's the same. newly yeah. in the U.S., if you see someone from Sweden or hear someone, you're like, oh, that sounds like a Swedish person. I'm going to go say hello. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, that is just true. true. Yeah. yeah, there's some great stories in the book where you have your daughter uh, daughters are, are, are correcting you. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yes, for sure. <laughs> they, they, they do that. They seem to be doing that more and more as they get older, which I mostly appreciate, although every now and again it gets on my nerves. But, yeah, uh, can you imagine good. that? Uh, uh, thank you so much, Mike. It was awesome. Where, where can um, people find you? And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the book is scheduled for May. Is that correct? They've actually moved it up, so it's coming out soon. You know, we're recording this here on April 1st. I think the book will be out in the next week or two because our okay. publisher wanted to get it out as soon as possible with the title being so uh, yeah, apropos to good, good to one. what's going on. But, yeah, people want to find out about me or the book. The best place, we actually have a special webpage for the book. It's mike-robbins.com forward slash together, and that has a bunch of info about the book, and if you order the book from that page – there's some additional bonus material that you get for free. Um, so there's some good stuff up there, and you can stay in touch with me and learn more about my work there. Awesome. Then I'm, we're going to put all that in the show notes. And uh, it was a great, great pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> you as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Corporate Corner. If you want to know more about us, read our blog and see notes about today's show and link to the podcast, go to our website, www.thecorporatecorner.net. There you also find links to our social media presence as well as means to support us. If you want to get in touch or share a corporate experience, write us at info at thecorporatecorner.net. We would love to hear from you. Have an excellent corporate week and talk to you soon.